This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Spyglass by Pat Tompkins and Bonnie and Clyde on Vacation by Aaron Efimenko. We now have a YouTube channel. Last month, for the first time, we invited past Bound Off contributors to create videos and the results amazed us. Their work was displayed in the video gallery of the Printer's Ball, a literary celebration that took place Friday, July 30th, 2010 at Columbia College, Chicago. To watch their short story videos, just visit our website at boundoff.com and click Video Project in the sidebar. Spyglass, written by Pat Tompkins, read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, 6 minutes, 34 seconds. Spyglass, by Pat Tompkins. After his daughter won first place at the Garfield Elementary Science Fair, Professor Hillman bought her a telescope. They set it up on the Widow's Walk, an architectural affectation for a house 500 miles from the sea. An eight-story dormitory blocked their view of rolling farmland. The dorm, Isaac C. Levinson Hall, resembled vertical ice cube trays. Everyone called it icy. Their first night with the telescope, Marie and her father were rewarded with a cloudless sky thick with stars. With a flashlight and guide to the constellations, he paced the narrow walkway and was surprised that he could see into so many neighbors' windows. The pale squares drew his interest more than the distant stars. At the north end, he saw the dormitory. On an autumn Sunday at 8.40, most rooms had open curtains. Dad, come see. Dutifully, he squinted at the Pleiades. There's seven sisters, but one is shy, Marie said. Actually, there's more than seven. I guess people were pretty bored in the old days, making up stories about stars. The professor studied his daughter, surprised at how young she sounded. Was it the lack of light, or were there fewer freckles on her cheeks? Are you wearing makeup? What? Dad, you know Mom would kill me if I did. Just checking. She would be a beauty in about ten years. We wouldn't want Mom killing you. Marie spent time with the telescope on the high walkway several nights a week. Professor Hillman always joined her, ostensibly because it was safer. The railing was low and Marie was as tall and gawky as a newborn giraffe. While she peered at the heavens, his eyes wandered the neighborhood. People rooting in refrigerators and flicking lights on and off. Headlights tracing the grid of streets. No indoor nudists, no sexual activities, no deviant behaviors. Disappointing, but what could you expect when your neighbors included Elliot Hastings, the emeritus classics professor? Anyway, checking out the neighbors this way was innocuous, and anything learned could prove useful. Ignorance was not bliss. But after viewing his neighbor's routines, he was lured by the walkway's north end. If he leaned against the railing, he could see the glass front of Icy. He imagined turning the telescope on the students. After all, to be an effective teacher, he needed to understand them. He would look just once and glean what he could. No harm in that. One night, Professor Hillman stayed up late grading midterm papers. His mind drifted from the Reichstag elections of 1932. The house was quiet, except for the radiator's gurgles. Alone, he stepped out on the widow's walk, and the crunch of gravel shouted. He removed his slippers. 
as he moved toward the telescope, wincing from the pebbles underfoot. A voice said this was wrong, sneaking around in the dark to spy on people. What if someone were watching him? He surveyed the block. The neighborhood appeared asleep. Really, if students weren't such enigmas, he wouldn't need to do this. Nearly every freshman passed through his intro to modern European history, often inarticulate, sullen, stunned by the amount of reading assigned. Besides, this offered a unique way to observe them. Research, really. For Professor Hillman, the heart of history was the common man. The army private, not the general. The usher, not the actor on stage. He aimed the telescope toward the dormitory. It was after midnight, yet only half the rooms were dark. No wonder his 9 a.m. class had empty desks. The clarity and detail through the lens astonished him. One student sat at his desk fingering pimples on his neck while he took notes from a book. In another room, lit by candles, a student was doing a shoulder stand. Three girls in bulky robes were sharing a pizza. Most of the students were alone reading. A typical Tuesday. Professor Hillman left the telescope, pointing skyward, and went inside. He should have picked a night with more potential. Tuesday hardly counted compared to the possibilities of a Saturday. Just once. That was the deal, said the scold in his head. Once, twice, what was the difference? Why not once for every night of the week? A comparative study. Wednesday night, Marie asked her father to stargaze with her. Okay, but just for a few minutes. He put a hand on her shoulder. I have a lot of reading to do. You always have lots of reading. Goes with the territory. She stood by the telescope. Doesn't history get boring? The same old stuff. He smiled. There are always different ways of looking at things. Interpretations change. But it's always Hitler who starts the war and Hitler who loses. That's true. There are some absolutes. You can't change the past. But Hitler had to lose. He was the bad guy. The professor winced. It's considerably more complicated than that. Marie sighed. Math is better. Hardly any reading, and you either have the right answer or you don't. But some wrong answers are closer to being correct than others, the professor said. They're still wrong. Marie peered at a large reddish star. Look at Beetlejuice, Dad. He bent to the eyepiece and gazed at the distant fire. It's a funny name, Beetlejuice, Marie said. It's Arabic, he straightened up. Lots of stars have Arabic names. Why's that? Well, imagine traveling across the sea or desert. Not much in the way of landmarks. So they used the stars as reference points, long before there were telescopes. Marie stared at the sky. I guess they were pretty smart. His eyes roamed over the rooftops. Come on, let's put this in the backyard. Then you can look as long as you want. I like being up here, she said. Yes, but you won't fall off the grass. He lifted the tripod and tucked the telescope under one arm. And from the backyard, with its high fence, he wouldn't be able to look in Icy's windows. The End Pat Tompkins is an editor in the San Francisco Bay Area. Her stories have appeared in the Bellevue Literary Review, Flashquake, and Mislexia. Bonnie and Clyde on Vacation Written and read by Aaron Efimenko. Listening time, 8 minutes, 56 seconds. Bonnie and Clyde on Vacation by Aaron Efimenko. Just drives. I read the maps. 
She has this habit, when we're scouting out new territory, of playing old-time radio shows. You know the kind. Sleuths and gangsters, hidden diamonds, guys called Mac, machine gun fire, girls screaming and fainting. All of it. She says it helps her concentrate. I tell her I dig it, but she plays it too loud, so she cranks the volume up with the windows open, and now it's only going to draw attention to us. Screaming in a string orchestra for suspense. It's bad enough we've got this beat-up black Chevy jalopy we're prowling around in, but then with all the noises issuing from the car, it's enough to have the cops called on us before we do anything. It's bad news, I tell her. Go screw, she says. I relent because she's driving, and I'm just supposed to read the maps. Despite her mood swings, Jess is all right. Apart from the radio show addiction, and she has over three dozen of those CDs scattered all over the back seat, she's a good partner. We case joints and glom them. I tell it that way because that's how we talk about it. Casing joints and glomming. The few times we're out in the day, we stare disbelieving out the windows at the hip teenagers with their cell phone cameras, the marrieds with their sugar-blasted kids dragged along behind them, the old people with their backs bent over, staring at the orthopedic shoes. That's not us. We're outside of all that. We don't understand the people towing the status quo. We don't get the modern culture. Instead, between jobs, we lay low and hit the old silver screen shows for inspiration. We want to be the film noir Dick and Damon distress, but we're on the wrong side of the law for that, so we drink in the gangster flicks, mostly. We take our cues from Humphrey Bogart and Jimmy Cagney, Joan Blondell and Margaret Lindsay. Jess prefers to think she has a chance to reform, to become an innocent dumb tart, and she reads and rereads Hammett and Chandler, and I watch her read them. At night, she reads in the car while I jimmy the lock, I cut the wires on the security system, I cut the glass, I feed the hound, I slip quick and quiet across the threshold. Oh, we're regular gangsters, all right. We're Bonnie and Clyde. Around last Halloween, we got dolled up, she in the skirt and jacket and hat with a big white feather, me in the pinstripe suit, both of us with plastic tommy guns. It was a real gas. We showed up at this hoity-toity Halloween party late and unannounced, and most of the people didn't care, as lit as they were by then. The mansion was a spectacle, a regular museum, all fine-cut glass dishware and polished silver carafes and little antique figurines, all proudly displayed for the guests to marvel at. So Jess rolled out her usual routine, feigning drunkenness, stumbling around, putting her hands and lipstick on anyone she could. And I hung back and sacked up the goods, and we ended up waltzing out of there, unnoticed, laughing, clapping people on their backs as we left, sack full of unchanged dough slung over my shoulder. Even when she's not driving, she's driving, that Jess. I'm not a bad broad to have around, am I? She says, and I nod. But you do that kind of thing once, and okay, sure, the law of averages says you get a free pass. But you keep doing that kind of thing, and, well, you're bound to get caught sometime, right? Except, the thing is, with us... We're completely unnoticeable. We're plain. We don't leave a memory. If you were to sit down and describe our faces to one of those police artists, he'd get frustrated and probably pop you one. You'd try your best, but his little sketch pad would reveal nothing but smooth planes of faces with average eyes, average noses, average mouths. Your eyes would slide right off us. Even then, even on paper, we're completely unremarkable looking, Jess and I. That's what Jess thinks it is, anyway. Our absolute plainness. We're not ugly. But we're not pretty, she says, and takes a drag on the joint and cranks up the detective radio drama as we cruise on down Da Vinci Drive, the latest neighborhood in a string of expensive neighborhoods just waiting to be cracked open with my crowbar. I think otherwise, though. And she knows what I think, and she won't let me say it. I call her a crazy skirt. She doesn't hear me, but she smiles to me as if she does. I call her a dame. She calls me Buster. We used to laugh about it, but now it's just part of the routine. We deliver our lines straight-faced and fiery, all the things we'd like to be on the inside. But there are a lot of seedy blue motels between us. 
Nights with me in my underwear sitting on the bed, wishing I smoked so I could look cool sitting there, her sleeping nude beside me. She's all right. She goes. But sometimes I don't have the heart to tell her how I feel about all this. Mostly we're just stupid and lucky, and we secretly want it to all come crashing down around us. But it doesn't. She lights up the mesca and offers me the joint. I decline. I used to take tokes, but gave that up just in time to find a girl like Jess, the kind who lights one to wake up and lights another to fall asleep. She takes the dope into the movies with her, too, no matter how many people are in there. I don't know how many times we've gotten kicked out of theaters because of her habit. Hell, I'm not even sure where she gets it from. I think maybe we're actually stuck in... You can't drive, Clyde. She calls me Clyde so much, I wonder if she even remembers my name. But she's right. I don't have my license. Never learned how. I see what she does, how she plays it, the way she has to keep her eyes moving from road to mirrors, the play of her foot on the pedals, the turn of the wheel, the coordination of her whole body as if it's part of the machine itself. The whole thing scares the hell out of me, and I barely trust Jess while driving. I certainly don't have that kind of faith in myself. Clyde, 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 what am I going to do with you? You're too much. She wants me to call her Bonnie when we're alone, even in bed, but I can't. There's something about calling her that while we're doing it that makes me uneasy, like we're giving ourselves up by playing the game even while we're alone. Every day I wake up in a motel or the car and I remind myself that she's Jess and I'm... You're who, she says, eyes wide and blank, mock appalled. I'm sick all the time, that's what I am. I can't help it, I've got snot leaking down my nose, lungs full of liquid. When I cough it sounds like a clogged kitchen sink trying to drain but not quite doing it. The only thing I steal from stores is cough syrup and cough drops. I can't remember what it's like to be healthy. Hell, I tell her. Most of the time, I don't even feel real anymore. Poor baby. I feel like one of those characters up on the screen, all black and white, shrouded in shadows, and the whole stupid Technicolor world is going past outside the car. What are we doing this for? Just to spend it on movies and books and gas? You can't drive, Clyde. You said it was fine for me, that the little tart needed something to keep her hands on, remember? You said you'd run the whole show with your maps and your brains. So here I am, doing what you say, but I'm telling you, you can't drive. She's smug, gloating, all white teeth and laughing eyes. Yeah, I remember, I tell her, not wanting to give in, to show her that I know that she knows that I know who's really making all the decisions. We're only out doing our thing during the spring and fall seasons, running our B&E racket, scoring big, not getting caught, always just ahead of the law. We take the daytime off. We cruise through the night. We try and find a place to lay low in the summer and winter months. In the summer, especially up here, everyone's on edge and hot, eager to notice something out of the ordinary. In the winter, everyone's lethargic, stays inside, guards their possessions. We kill time. We go to the movies. But you like the movies. Hell, you're the one who usually brings up going. I don't. I have my books. I read. Drive slow, you say, just so I can see where we're going. And I do. I think of all those normal people we pass by in our car. Insurance mortgages, income taxes, cable bills, credit card debt. Of all the regular payments we could have, it's that stupid AAA card. It allows us to walk into a AAA office and pick up a ton of maps and brochures, load them in the car, and choose our next destination. As if we were going on vacation. Hey, I say. Hey, we're like Bonnie and Clyde Light or something. You know, not killing people, but still breaking the law. We're like Bonnie and Clyde on vacation. She doesn't seem amused just makes fists around the steering wheel, sticks out her lower lip. She's cute when she does that, but I feel like I don't love her the way I should to be doing all of this with her. I should be dizzy with this dame, and I'm not. I'm only playing the part. I'm not him. Just read the map, she says. I tell her I feel like I'm always reading the map and giving her directions, and I have no idea where we're going. I become hysterical, slip out of character. She reaches over and slaps me. I notice I was crying a little and wipe it away. Just read the map and tell me where to go. 
I'm not in the mood for any of your nonsense. Last night, for the first time ever, I couldn't do it. I couldn't perform. She knows something's up. You just pick a place. I don't care where. She's slipping out of character, too. She turns up the radio, and all I hear is orchestra music. The dialogue's played out. The plot's wound down, and now the show is over. I stare out the windshield and see blood-red skies raining lightning and mud. I see the world on fire. All the crimes we've ever committed are out there, being committed again and again, by us, luridly lit up with no shadows to hide them. I see our past and our future, and none of it matters what order it's in, because it's all the same. It's always ever going to be the same. The vision passes. You know we're in hell, I tell her. It's just you and me, us, forever and ever. I'm never going to get over this stupid cold, we're never going to get caught, and all we'll be is on the lam, in the Chevy, going too fast to nowhere in particular. Jess runs her thumb over a layer of dust on the steering wheel, wipes it on her pants. It's okay, because I don't ever want to leave you, she says. I think I smile and look at nothing out the window. Aaron Afamenko received his MFA in fiction from Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, and teaches English in Central New York at Morrisville State College. He has recently published in the online magazines The DF Underground and Zenith. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>